Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Ruby Warrington. Ruby is a British-born thought leader and writer, and Ruby has the unique ability to put her thumb on issues and ideas that are destined to become part of the broader cultural narrative. In her last book, Sober Curious, which we discussed on the show, she identified the growing trend of folks that are eschewing social alcohol consumption. And that's become quite a movement now. In her new book, Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood, Ruby asks the question, what if being a woman without kids were its own kind of legacy? In today's conversation, we take an anthropological dig as well as a personal look into a stubbornly taboo topic, women who forgo motherhood. Ruby gives us a brave reframing of everything it means not to be a mom, and at a crucial point in our history, our discussion about motherhood and non-motherhood and women's ongoing fight for gender equality is set against the backdrop of a global reproduction slowdown. Almost 50% of women over the age of 45 in the United States do not have children. Ruby emphasizes that the cohort of non-mothers is by no means insignificant in the historical and cultural narrative. And whether they are childless by design or by circumstance, they should be able to live without regret, without shame, and without self-doubt. And with open hearts, we discuss why the unsung sisterhood of non-mothers are no longer pariahs or misfits, but a vital part of our evolution. Now, this was a touching and sometimes emotional conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. But before we dive in, I want to let you know about some of our programs on the Commune course platform. If you're interested in courses on spiritual and personal development, nutrition, gut health, Ayurveda, hormone balancing, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library including more than 130 courses on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Ruby Warrington. Ruby Warrington, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Such a treat to be back with you. Likewise, Jeff, it's been a while. It's really, I always enjoy talking to you, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, nice. We we share an intertwined history, and uh, it seems like we find each other again every couple of years, so there's a reason for that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, first of all, congratulations on birthing your new book here. Uh, for those watching on uh, video, uh, here it is, Women Without Kids. And I, I, you know, I really just, as I told you before we started, I just l- absolutely love your writing. And I also just found the topic uh, fascinating and I'm excited to explore it. Um, with you. And uh, given that you are a woman without kids and I'm a man with perhaps too many, (laughs) uh, I I expect it to be 
um, a lively conversation coming from two different perspectives and set of circumstances. So, you know, your books tend to be these very articulate excavations of your own personal life and then how they interact with broader societal trends, which is really interesting. So your last book, and we, we talked about it here on the podcast, which was Sober Curious, you know, you put your thumb smack on this movement around sobriety, but of course this was also a reflection of something that you were going um, you were dealing with in your own personal life. And, and obviously, uh, this topic, um, women without kids is, is just as personal and societal. So I found that to be interesting. So maybe just, we'll start on the personal side and then we can sort of bleed over into the more kind of social context of, of some of what you're writing about. So let's just start like, what was the inspiration uh, that led you to throw yourself uh, into this work? There was a um, <clears throat> a very specific moment when this idea downloaded itself into my brain from the big ideas vending machine in the sky. <laughs> um, I was about a year out from publishing Sober Curious and was extremely burnt out. Um, it was incredible the way that that book took off and the way the conversation took off, off in the public sphere, but it meant that I had been talking about it constantly, incessantly for a year and finally managed to wrest myself away from my laptop and take a few days um, break over Christmas, a little bit before Christmas 2019. <clears throat> and on the last day of this break, um, I was in Vieques in Puerto Rico and it was a day on the beach, sunshine and showers. And every time a shower came across, um, my husband and I would retreat into this little kind of cabin on the side of the beach, <clears throat> excuse me. And there was a box of books kind of washed up, kind of sandy pages stuck together. And one of the books was a book called The Silent Passage by Gail Sheehy, who wrote that very famous book, Passages. This was her book about menopause. And she, in her book, was reframing menopause, not as the end of a woman's life, but rather the gateway to her second adulthood. And I found myself reading this book at age 43, not having had children, contemplating the very real biological end of my reproductive potential and realizing that I had no regrets whatsoever about not having had children and that this had absolutely been the right choice and the right path for me to pursue. Um, but that this had gone very much counter to what everybody else had told me I would feel about mm. being a woman without kids. I also had seen in my own life, and there were many celebrity examples of this, women who reaching their kind of early to mid forties seem to feel a sense of panic of, actually, I did want to do this thing after all, and I better get on with it because this really is my last opportunity. And I realized that wasn't the case for me at all. If anything, I was quite excited about <laughs> getting over the hump of menopause and into um, perhaps a more hormonally balanced <laughs> period of my life. <laughs> Pun not intended. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but, um, but I sort of realized, and this all kind of came crashing in at the same moment, I suppose, that I realized, number one, I was incredibly grateful and fortunate and privileged to actually have been born at a time in an era and in a country where I had options about how to 
engage with my procreative potential and about what I wanted to do with my life in general, I also realized that the intense self-doubt, shame, and judgment mm. I had experienced about being a woman without kids throughout my 20s and 30s had all been external. None of that was mm. true to my feelings about this subject and that that felt like a huge waste of energy. The amount of questioning I had done about why I didn't want to be a mother, why I had chosen to do other things with my life. And so from a personal perspective, I really wanted to, um, I suppose, offer to any other woman without kids um, the freedom to feel, to not feel any shame about that, to, mm. to claim yeah. that choice, that decision, that path, if it's what feels right for her. Um, and I also, I suppose at that age, um, the external questioning, which had been intense, particularly in my, as my I progressed through my thirties, but why don't you have children? Are you sure? Have you thought about this? You will regret it. You might not feel like it, but <laughs> that's not the yeah. case. You do really what you do want it really. It was very, very intense. And people felt incredibly entitled to have a lot of opinions about this. Um, I think that had sort of eased off actually in my early forties, not least mm. because lots of the people who'd been doing the questioning were now busily kind of embroiled in the daily, daily um, tasks of raising their own children. Um, and I actually felt that I had enough clarity and headspace to be able to answer some of those deeper questions myself from a mm. perhaps more slightly detached place. Um, I'd always been quite confident in this inner knowing that motherhood did not feel like it was the, a, role, the, a role that was right for me. Um, but now I felt really ready to dig into why that was, because as mm. much as I felt confident in that, it felt like it was right to me. I'm also very aware that this does go against my so-called biological imperative as a woman, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that many people would say that the procreation of the species is the reason we are here. So why was it that I had never felt a desire for that? I became very curious about that. And so I really wanted to give myself the, give myself permission, I suppose, to really dive deeply into answering some of those big picture questions about the decision not to have children. Hmm. Yeah. Well, certainly if there's a word that describes you, it's curious. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that you had this internal knowing of sort of the affirmative no, or you talk about that a bit. Um, but it, it took this moment on the beach or this inflection point to be able to <clears throat> completely shirk sort of the external biases that are um, so connected to this concept of pronatalism, right? So mm. could you kind of unpack, and you just did in some ways, but more concisely, the concept of pronatalism and how and where it shows up? So pronatalism, I hadn't heard this term before I started researching this book. Actually, I might have heard it used in reference to various policies that governments might be putting in place in order to encourage people to have children. For example, I think Hungary is one country that is described as very pronatalist, meaning that they actually pay quite large cash advances to potential parents to encourage them to have children, these sorts of things. <laughs> um, but the term was first used um, in a conversation when I, I edit, um, 
sorry, I interviewed a woman named Jodie Day, who has an organization in the UK called Gateway Women, which is specifically set up to help people grieve their childlessness, people who are childless, not by choice, and who have struggled with infertility and not been able to have the children that they want. I wanted to speak to that perspective in the book too. So I interviewed Jodie and she used the term and she described it as um, a cornerstone of patriarchy, which essentially is an ideology. Pronatalism is an ideology that says that parents are more valid than non-parents. And that within that, heterosexual married people are more valid than single people. And it's a simplistic explanation, but it's one of those terms or one of those explanations when you hear it, you can't then help but sort of see it everywhere. And particularly for people who don't have children, there's almost a visceral sense of, oh yes, I feel the impact of that in the way that people talk about my procreative choices, in the side eye, I might have got the subtle, not so subtle encouragement or admonishment from other family members, other members of my community about my not being, not, not being a parent or also not being married. Um, hmm. So yes, pronatalism is this belief that really is kind of baked into our societies that what human beings are here to do is to procreate. And that if you do not do that, you are somehow shirking your duty as an adult human being. Women in general bear the brunt of the sort of ebb and flow of societal views about this. Obviously, China had a very restrictive policy around right. children being born for some time. And then it's, 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 a little bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't in the workplace, because while there's stigma attached to women that have, you know, are selfish and, and, you know, just career focused, you know, to the exclusion of their, you know, um, of the, the, the nature of, of, of nurture, um, you know, there's also a, a viewpoint, I think, in corporate America of like, oh, well, you know, mothers, aren't as productive or something. So it's like, the, it's a very, very, um, it's a very, very difficult uh, tightrope to walk. I mean, I'm curious, you know, I've heard you speak about your family and, you know, I come from a broken family. So my parents had this extended acrimonious divorce. Um, and uh, and it, it really could have, uh, resulted in, in me just absolutely shunning the notion of relationship of like, oh, that's not going to work, you know. Mm. Um, I went the other way, you know, I've met Skylar at a very, very young age and in some ways I was very needy and it's not like I was looking for a mother per se, but she did fulfill some roles that were perhaps more that of a nurse than <laughs> of a partner <laughs> or something, not sure. Um but, you know, I, I know that you also grew up in a broken home. And I also know that, you know, your father, I believe, is the primary caregiver for your stepbrother. Um, and so, you know, I'm curious to what degree your family circumstance influenced your decision not to have children. 
Well, this is this actually was one of the big entry points. And one of the things I was most curious about when I first started <clears throat> thinking about, well, why did I never want to have children? And I sort of asked the question of myself and then I put it into an online survey and which I also kind of sent around to my audience and got about 200 responses. How does our experience of being mothered impact our feelings about becoming a mother? <clears throat> now, obviously this is a book, Women Without Kids, so I'm speaking very much to the female experience. I think there needs to be a, a brother book <laughs> about <laughs> men without kids. And actually as a slight aside, I do think the fact that within the child-free and childless kind of space as it exists, there are zero male voices. This is not indicative of the fact, I think, that being a man without kids doesn't have a big impact psychologically, sociologically on a, a man's life too. But I think it, it shows the extent to which we still see child rearing and family life as very much the female domain. Mm. When, as we know, yeah. it takes a male and a female to create a child. <laughs> And men and women are equally supposedly biologically hardwired to reproduce. But within pronatalism, as it is an extension of patriarchy, we still very much see child rearing as a women's issue. So that's kind of a bit of an aside. <laughs> so, but, but also, you know, I was thinking about how does our experience of being mothered impact our feelings about becoming a mother? And within because we're broadening out then how does our experience of family life influence our feelings about creating a family and we what we want our family to be and i sort of i knew growing up in a, a family where there was a lot of dysfunction if not any outright abuse um just a lot of dysfunction a lot of distance a lot of resentment a lot of estrangement um Family had never really felt like this sort of cozy hub of nurturance um, mm. that many people experience. And perhaps it's actually quite an idealist, idealized way to think about family because my research also showed that up to 80% of people think that they come from a, or describe their family as dysfunctional on some level. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but in the survey that I sent out and within the responses I received, there was a very clear link that people's experiences of, of being mothered had a very profound impact on their feelings about becoming a mother. And that for people who were choose either choosing not to have children or who were questioning whether or not they wanted to, um, a fraught or difficult relationship with their mother was often a part of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, and in terms of coming from a, a, a broken family or a family of divorce, um, there's no clear research or numbers to show that that people who don't have children are more likely to have that kind of a background and i think actually there is can be a really strong urge among people to heal that or do things do it differently with their own family mm -hmm. you know yeah. having a, having children having a family finding a relationship where you can sort of do it how you want it how you wanted to experience to create that to create for yourself what perhaps you didn't experience in your family of origin, your biological family with your parents and siblings. Um, that I would certainly say was the case with my mother. Um, and she did a pretty amazing job given the resources that she had available to her in creating a very loving um, and emotionally supportive home for my brother and I. Um, it was fraught in other ways. But you touched as well on my father's situation. So my half brother, um, his son with his second wife, has very, very severe disabilities. 
he was born when I was 20. Um, and I hadn't been living in the family home. I mean, I hadn't been, I hadn't really ever lived with my father. He and my mom separated when I was one. <clears throat> so I never really, I didn't have that sort of growing up experience with him where we bonded as siblings. Um, and being so much older than him as well, I was very much kind of on my own trajectory by the time, but certainly by the time his disabilities really started to present. Um, he's 27 now, my dad's 76 and he and his mm. wife remain my, my half brother's full-time caregivers. They haven't been able to find residential care that is sufficient to meet his needs, which are very, very severe and intensive and, um, <laughs> 24 seven. And I think growing up in close quarters, watching this play out, um, as much as I always had an inkling that there were other things I wanted to do with my life besides become a parent. Um, I also, yeah, have a very firsthand close up awareness of what it really takes to raise a child with disabilities. And given that one of his conditions is very severe, high spectrum, autism and knowing that the extent to which that can be heritable, I think that was another, um, another stop sign for me on the road mm -hmm. of that decision-making. Yeah. And, you know, we just haven't equipped our society with the support systems, um, you know, around, you know, how we care you know, for people that have certain disabilities. And so then it becomes incumbent on uh, family members to provide that kind of care. And I mean, I can only imagine what it would be like at 76 years old when you're in your putative golden years, you know, to be, mm -hmm. you know, the primary caregiver for someone uh, who I, I'm not sure if the condition is kind of epileptic or, but it seems like there's seizures and things like that, which is incredibly intense and, you know, can require emergency room care and all this kind of stuff. And then, um, so, you know, we, we just don't seem to be able to scaffold our society, uh, you know, with the resources. And, and, and I know that this spills over really into what, um, I can't remember the, the name of the woman who wrote the book Birth Strike, but I, I know you mentioned mm. it. But it carries over, I think, into a lot of the uh, trends or, or tendency now for women to say, you know, hey, no, affirmative no. Like there's, we simply don't have the institutional support um, to be able to properly, you know, raise children and particularly children that, that have some form of disability. So it, it's, you know, it's, um, and I think we can get into um, some of the reasons why this is, you know, we're seeing, you know, massively declining birth rates. Um, but, I, you know, there's, a, there's another question that, you know, I was thinking about, and I know that, that you broach it, um, but, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is, the revolutionary rise of an unsung sisterhood. And, you know, you're there, it's kind of at the you know, tip of the spear, fostering and shaping this sisterhood. And in doing so, you're having to create some, some bedfellows 
where that might have some kind of innate tension. So, you know, you talk about childless by design or childless by circumstance. So there are women like you that have strongly set up and they stood up and said, this is just an affirmative no. Like, you know, I know who I am and this is not me. Um, and, but then there's also another significant group of women who have really always wanted children, but for one reason or another are physically, physiologically incapable of having children. So there might be sort of this inherent tension between those two groups, right? Of like where, you know, women who are infertile in some fashion could look at women who have, are more in the affirmative no camp and with a bit of resentment, but now, but you're sort of fostering uh, a sisterhood among them. And I, I guess I would say like, how, you know, what are the commonalities that are shared across these groups and how, how do you form um, this broader sisterhood? Before I answer that, I just want to reflect quickly on something, something else that you brought up. So just mm -hmm. very, to close off on sort of speaking about my dad's current situation, he and his wife live in England where there is a much more robust social support system in place. Right. They do get government funding for all of, jo I call him Joseph in the book, Joseph's care. There are care workers who come into their house seven days a week. Um, so they are getting as bad as much support as they could need. However, it still isn't enough for somebody mm -hmm. with needs as, as intense as Joseph's. Yes, it's epilepsy and mm -hmm. it's autism, but actually his condition is was only recently diagnosed as um, it's an incredibly rare genetic malformation. Only 26 mm -hmm. people in the world have this. So it's one of those real oh bolt in the dark kind of yeah. just completely out of nowhere. Um, scenarios so anyway yes and, and jenny brown wrote the book burst strike which gets into and we'll probably go there next why so many people are what are defined as childless by circumstance <clears throat> mm -hmm. so to give a bit more context on the question that you raised about this kind of the ones who can't have kids and the ones who won't have kids this kind of mm -hmm. False divide in a way, this binary, right. the mummy binary. Well, I define the mummy binary. There's a mummy binary that exists between mums and non-mums. So mums are natural, valid, have done their bit, will be fulfilled, will not regret their choice. And then there are non-mums who are selfish, deluded, career obsessed, heartless, and will regret their choice. Now that binary is obviously extremely two-dimensional and by no means reflects the lived experience of women, mothers and not. Um, but then within the non-mom end, you also have the binary between the ones who can, who can't have kids and the ones who won't have kids. And again, the won't have kids are the ones who come out painted with the <laughs> nastiest yeah. brush. Um, yeah. But yeah, of all the, of all the people who don't have children, and by the way, I will point out that almost 50% of women over the age of 45 in the United States do not have children. So by no means are we an insignificant sisterhood. This is 50% of women over the age of 45. And actually just in January this year, for the first time since records began in the 1920s, the number of women who had not had a child by the age of 30 tipped over to over 50%. So yeah. this reflects that women are having children much later, which by extension means more women will have no children at all. So of all the people who don't have children, about 10% are the affirmative no's. This is a choice. This is not for me. About 10% of 
have experienced fertility issues, have tried probably and failed to, to have the children that they often desperately want. Then then the other 80% of this childless by circumstance cohort. So not necessarily definitely wanted to have children, but probably would have had things sort of worked out differently. And for those childless by circumstance, um, economic reasons rank the highest in terms of why people are either actively choosing not to, are deciding now is not the right time and possibly leaving it quote unquote too late, um, or are on the fence and still kind of weighing it up. Mm -hmm. Second in these circumstances comes not finding, not being able to find a suitable partner to co-parent with. Um, and again, in the book, I kind of really go very deep into the driving forces behind these circumstances. I also question or examine, I suppose, where choice and circumstance sort of overlap and intersect in a way. I sort of think that obviously the circumstances that we're born into first and foremost can dictate very much the, the opportunities and the, 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 the choices that are available to us, the choices that we then make kind of dictate the shape of our circumstances going forward. So I think there's actually a fine line and a lot of kind of, um, air, a lot of gray area actually in between choices and circumstances, all of our choices are the results of the circumstances that we find ourselves in and the circumstances that we're being influenced by. Um, and so that childless by circumstance, they're sort of childless by choice, but perhaps would have made a different choice had circumstances been different. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> Among sure. more pronatalist circles, this childless by circumstance cohort is painted very as very tragic. These people want to have children, desperately want to have children, but can't. <laughs> Where I don't think it's necessarily that simple. I know a lot of the Catholic families that I know from the East Coast that have like a, essentially a baseball team of, of children. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they, any woman that they would meet that would be childless is approached with like pity really mm. in those circles. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> um, so it's, it's, you know, my wife, Skylar comes from a family of very, very strong women who chose not to have children. Mm. Um, and they were kind of amongst this community. And I kind of saw that, that bifurcation um, that you talk about, that sort of binary of like, okay, well, those are the kooky, esoteric, eccentric, uh, you know, women. They happen to also be very successful. So they were sort of revered in some fashion, but they were just seen as strange and outliers. Mm. And, mm. Um, and there were these Catholic families, you know, birthing, you know, a child every year, every other year. And it's like, um, and I, you know, I know you speak about some of the, you can almost set your watch to the, um, sort of political affiliations and whatnot of those families. Right. So they tend to be quite conservative, white, affluent, et cetera. And, and that, you know, goes to perpetuate, 
you know, certain concepts that we have as normative in, in our society. So, right, exactly. Um, and in terms of the, you asked about the um, the commonalities among this sisterhood. Well, I think it's one right. of the most ambitious, I mean, it's an incredibly ambitious project overall. And I suppose I just want to give you a little bit more here on, um, so you asked me at the beginning of the conversation about my personal reasons for writing the book. Very quickly, the universal piece kind of flowed into I'd also, I'd been following the news, the trends as I do, and had noticed that the birth rate has been declining steeply in every country around the world for the best part of the past century, excepting the baby boom of the, that gave us the boomer generation, right. <laughs> which by which, at which point there were, there was outcry about, you know, the, the population bomb that was about to explode, meaning that we were going to have too many people to feed in future, et cetera, et cetera. We had Roe v. Wade, you know, abortion being legalized in the United States around that time as well. <clears throat> but the birth rate has been declining so steeply, so steadily. And what is not really spoken about when demographers especially look at that huge demographic shift that is absolutely reshaping our societies and will continue to do so as we move through this century, is that that huge shift represents millions and millions, if not billions of individual, very personal, very individualistic, often very conflicted and very fraught decisions on the part of individual women. So I was really wanting to give that conversation the space and the depth of thought and consideration that I think it really deserves. You know, it's a huge shift for womankind that's being reflected. Um, So I, I wanted to speak to Yes, women who can't have kids, women who don't want kids, women who are on the fence. And even, and this was on the behest of my editor at Sounds True, my publisher, who has one child, but was very excited about this project because she said, I'm a, I'm a mom and I want to read this book. And mm-hmm. I thought, really? Mm-hmm. And she said, can you include moms too? And my first thought was like, oh God, as if moms don't have <laughs> enough books for them. <laughs> this is the whole point. Right. <laughs> but then I thought, actually, this is very interesting because what I heard from her was, I want to stay connected to the woman I am without my kids. I don't want mum mm. to be my sole identity. And right. I think that many mothers experience that. And I think that can be the source of, um, yeah, a lot of women's feelings of discontent in their mothering, this sense that once I become a mother, this is my sole identity. This is my true purpose. This is the thing that will bring me the most satisfaction and fulfillment and everything else is secondary. And I don't think that all women and all mothers feel that. And I wanted to point out that it's normal to still want to have a life outside of your life as a mother. And so I also was then trying to include Moms who who want to stay connected to that woman they are without their kids within this sisterhood. And so the commonalities that we experience is that feeling of being othered, of feeling that we we we've missed something, that we're missing out, um, the feeling of being judged for our decisions, our choices, our lives, the people that we are. Um, and it sounds sort of simplistic to say that that's what it comes down to, but actually being the other particularly in a subject that is as life and death, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that is as interwoven into our society and the fabric of like our humanity as this can just lead to such intense feelings of shame and so Mm -hmm. much self-doubt and so much cognitive dissonance and so much inner questioning. And this is a huge, huge 
um, expenditure of energy. This can be extremely um, prohibitive of us really pursuing what does light us up and what we do feel passionate about fully without shame. And so, yeah, that, that shame of being othered is the common, the commonality among women without kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. This point that, that you bring up and as I'm listening to it, I'm really, um, delineating some of the experience of what it's like to be a, a male parent versus a female parent. So like for me, I'm very connected to my fatherhood and my role as a dad, but I'm just as much connected to my role as a podcast host or an intellectual or an entrepreneur or a writer, you know, I'm not anchored in one specific thing that defines my identity. And I'm mm. given really, that's a great freedom. It's, it's wonderful to be sort of multidimensional and multi-passionate. But um, I do, I think what, you know, you point out so eloquently is that many women anchor their identity in their motherhood. And I know a lot of women because I'm 52 now. So, and I know women that are like in their mid fifties and early sixties, whose, whose kid, whose kids have left the house, for example, and they go through these periods of extreme depression and sort of liminal kind of feelings of self-doubt and worthlessness, et cetera, like, or they don't know what their role is anymore because they've girded their identity so deeply in motherhood. And it's, um, and I think as you speak to kind of how mothers can relate to the work that you're doing, I think a lot of those women really can because they all of a sudden when, you know, the kids are off, you know, doing God knows what, <laughs> um, you know, there is this feeling, this sense of loss of identity. And so, um, anyhow, anyhow, I think it's, it's obviously, I think it's just very different, not for all men, but for, mm. I think many men, because we have been sort of afforded that flexibility, you know, to be a dad, but, you know, probably not generally be the primary caregiver and, you know, pursue career and all that stuff and, and get a, a sort of a lot of gratification from a lot of different parts of our life. So, um, it's interesting. And this is this is what this is what the second wave of feminism fought for women to have, mm. in fighting for women to be able to quote unquote have it all. It was yeah. about enabling women the opportunities to get an education, to pursue a career, to pursue financial independence, to pursue financial prosperity in their own right without having to depend on a man to provide those things for them, and to also have children. However, the past four or five decades have borne out how challenging that is to really yeah. quote unquote, give yourself to both a career, particularly if it's a career that has a kind of more creative or entrepreneurial bent where you are really generating that for yourself, um, with the demands of motherhood, you know? And so I think that's something that's really falling apart for, 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 for the generations of women currently who are deciding rather than burn myself out trying to do it all quote unquote, like a man, <laughs> I'm going to choose one or the other because the difference is, I mean, who was I? Oh, I can't remember some Instagram reel, some comedian. Oh, I think it was Ali Wong. <laughs> it was just a reel from her recent Netflix special going, do you know how much more successful I would be if I had a wife, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And yeah. I think that sort of like really shines a light on where this fell apart in a way. Mm. Yeah. You know, for, yeah, yeah. When, in, in some of, um, you know, just 
pulling statistics and researching a little bit before our conversation, just to kind of underscore and the, the, the kind of depths of the trends right now around birth rates. And you may have statistics that are more up to date than, than I do, but let me just pull some of these that I found. So mm -hmm. the percentage of women aged 15 to 44 in 2015 to 2019 um, that had a biological child is now just 52%. So bar barely over 50%. And that is down significantly, even just from five years prior, down mm -hmm. 3%. The declines, this was interesting, um, have also been seen for men becoming fathers. So 39.7% of boys and men aged 15 to 44 had fathered a child. I mean, just less than 40%. Right. And by 2019, the average female aged 15 to 49 had given birth to 1.3 children, and the average male had fathered 0.9 children. Right. I, I'd love to see a 0.9 of a kid. <laughs> what does that look like? <laughs> um, and I was that, that statistic sort of made me scratch my head, but then, of course, I have chickens, and then I realized you only need one rooster. So I kind of... <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, figured that out quickly. Um, so, you know, the, the, the statistics are really significant here. Hugely. And it's, I mean, and... You know, there's a, I mean, we've touched on some of the causes, you know, I was just reading um, uh, Vivek Murthy's book on loneliness. So he's the U.S. Surgeon General and, um, you know, he's declared loneliness as this epidemic and God, there's some other statistics in there. Single or not, 58% of all Americans report that they eat every single meal alone. I was like, no, that's got to be a typo. I read it like nine times. Wow. And, um, and so loneliness and social isolation has got to be some contributing factor, right, to this, to this trend, right? Because, um, you know, obviously we've all heard this phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. And that's based really in kind of hunt. African proverb is like the hunter-gatherer society of mm. like, okay, our children, they're born essentially premature. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At nine months, they require so much care. And there's all sorts of evolutionary tension around that and birth canals narrowing while we became bipedal. And then we discovered fire and cooked food and our brains grew and all this kind of stuff. And we had to birth these children before the grain brains got too big to get them out the birth canal. So all of a sudden mm -hmm. they had to be born essentially premature. So they required so much care. And that's why it takes a village because, you know, you, you, you see like a foal that's born in, in like an hour, it's running across the pasture. Feeding itself. Or like, yeah, <laughs> essentially like I think a robin, it takes 20 days for a robin to essentially like, fly the coop and fly and become a completely an independent bird, you know, we can't even see as babies properly, you know, for uh, like, I think it's a month or something like that. So, you know, it, this idea of, of how lonely we are, of the erosion of community has got to play a significant part in, in what we're seeing. Did, did you find that in, in your yeah. research? I mean, I feel like there's so many places we could go with what you just shared. Um, so there's a chapter in the book on found family and mm -hmm. how for people who don't have children, our non-blood 
family become very central in our lives and are very important. And one thing I came away from writing the book with was a really renewed sense of the responsibility that I have to make sure that my, my non-biological kinship connections are nurtured and maintained. Um, especially since I was writing it during the pandemic, you know, against the backdrop of months and months and months of social distancing, which obviously I think had a huge impact on our loneliness epidemic. Um, when you get out of practice of, of being in communion with others, it becomes easier and easier just to isolate and less and less, um, harder and harder to kind of see the point, I suppose, of making those interactions. Especially, and I mean, like I said, there's so many places that we could go and they're sort of all crowding into my head at once. (laughs) (laughs) But um, there are many, there are many, um, there was a fantastic David Brooks piece in The Atlantic um, that Mm. came out around the time I started researching this on the, why the nuclear family was a mistake. So he charts the decimation of these kind of wider, more tribal kind of interconnected family systems over the course of the past couple of centuries into smaller and smaller and smaller family networks. Um, And then with the divorce boom of the 1980s, even those nuclear family units, two parents, 2.4 kids, were split apart into even smaller constellations of often solo solo parents, kind of independent parents. Um, And then these sort of fractured family systems where you might have step families, et cetera, et cetera. And within that fracturing, um, yeah, a real loss of community and a loss of our sort of tribal roots, I suppose. There was also um, demographers in the 1970s started talking about what they termed the second demographic transition, where they predicted that actually everything from this sort of breakdown of more traditional family networks to women's emancipation, meaning women were going to have spend less time in the home, tending, doing the caregiving in the home, to globalization, meaning that more people were going to move to different countries and be separated from their families in that way, and immigration as part of that too. Um, all of these things would lead to one of their big predictions in the 1970s was smaller families and people having far fewer children because there's just been less emphasis placed on the importance of the family as the nucleus of society. Mm. And so this is this is all part of our drive towards individualism, which has given people a huge amount of freedom and autonomy and opportunity in their lives. But the cost of that has been these more community intergenerational um, interdependent support networks. And I think the loneliness epidemic is part and parcel of our thrust towards more individualistic societies yeah. as well. I also make the point in that chapter that our app culture whether it's social media, whether it's dating apps, whether it's Deliveroo, whether it's banking apps, whatever it is, apps have eroded massively and very, very quickly the actual need for interpersonal human interactions. It is quite possible now to never leave your apartment and get everything you need sort of brought to you, everything you need that is apart from deep, the kinds of especially deep, intimate connections with other human beings that ideally are what lead to the procreation of the species, yeah. <laughs> right? So I think all of these <laughs> right. things have kind of combined and they're all contributing to this loneliness epidemic. And yes, I think the more individualistic and individuated our society becomes, the less the less opportunities there will be to form those, I like I said, ideally um, deep intimate connections that are, are what kind of start a family, you know? 
obviously this kind of individualistic culture that seems to be kind of a product of capitalism um, really stems from this this idea or really a kind of a misunderstanding of this idea of survival of the fittest. So we've kind of painted that idea as kind of the, you know, the Marlboro man hero or like the, you know, star athlete, you know, the king of the jungle kind of, you know, this only the strongest will survive. But, you know, upon greater examination, what you actually find is that community is an adaptive advantage. Um, it's actually nature selects for community, not for individualism. Mm. But unfortunately, we live in this culture that is at odds with that. And like you say, you know, I mean, we just tend to live now in single family homes almost exclusively. And, you know, even within those homes, like, you know, my kids like burrow themselves into their little box, living in a bigger box, inside a bigger box with a fence around it, you know, separate. And we've just created all of these barriers of separation. And then, you know, we create these kind of digital uh, facsimiles for connection. But in study after study, social media has been shown to actually exacerbate feelings of loneliness and, and not connection. And so then, you know, you wonder where, societal bonds start to fall apart uh, mm. and we don't feel as if we have the support or the resources to do things that we might otherwise do. And, and, you know, I think that, that there's a lot there. Um, I think also, you know, you spoke a little bit about the UK and about, um, you know, social support systems that are available there. I mean, in the United States, that's not really as true and, you know, I wonder if you could kind of unpack that, like, well, what's going on here in the United States where we're seeing really significant birth decline? Um, and what's the connection there between kind of lack of, of institutional support for people? I suppose first I want to say the, the number one driver really in this birth rate drop all around the world is women having more access to more choice, more freedom and more autonomy. That's like the number one driver. So this is a net positive for women. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Even though within that, and this is where the nuance piece comes in, even though within that for some people not being able to have the children they want does not feel like a net positive, but like across the board, the more education women have, the more access women have to career opportunities, the more access women have to physical autonomy and choice the fewer children they will have. Yeah, um, let me just add to there one point because it's fresh on my mind. You know, I interviewed a guy named Paul Hawken. He's kind of one of the most prolific environmentalists in the world, amazing author. I think the number three and four um, best ways to reverse climate change is educating women and girls. So be, for the exact reasons that you just, uh, outlined. And so, you know, of course, you know, we don't always make that, that doesn't feel instinctual. Right. In the, in that reducing the global population, environmentalists will tell you that we need to reduce the size of the global population because our resources on planet earth, for example, fossil fuels are set to run out this century. Our resources are no longer going to be able to meet the demands, consumption demands of our population if it continues to grow at the rate which it has mm-hmm. been. 
which it's not, it's declining. And some people on the more spiritual tip might say, well, this is not mother, this is mother nature, mm. nature writing herself, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I sort of get into that in my book too, because I like to go to those places too. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but then economists will say, we need to keep growing the size of the population. This birth rate decline is a disaster for humanity because we have these aging populations right. and we're not having enough young people being coming into the economy to support our aging populations. So there's a real disconnect there between whether the population decline is a good thing or a bad thing. And it depends whether you're an environmentalist or a capitalist ultimately. <laughs> um, right. But that's not to deny that, yes, we are going to have to seriously rethink how we care for our aging populations, which comes back to this point is again, of like human beings need a lot of care. Yeah. Care happens oftentimes in communities supporting and chipping in for the care wherever it is needed, whether that's care of infants, whether that's care of elderly people who are no longer able to support themselves, right? And so what's been eroded in this culture of individualism is interdependent networks of care. You know, our care is now, especially in a country like the US, outsourced to capitalist profit-making enterprises. And so, I mean, there's a quote from Jerome Lanier. Are you familiar with him? Has he been on the podcast yet? I actually met him a couple of times. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's Lanier or Lanier. I'm not sure, but um, I, Lanier, yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant guy. One of one of the one of the OG founders of the internet, kind of thing. Who's who's sort of yeah, dropped out and is now quite anti-internet. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he there was a quote from him. Um, you know, the economy the economy only works now if you are young, healthy, and childless, which is if you are one of the quote unquote fittest, right? The survival mm. of the fittest economy has really left so many cracks for people to fall through. And I think that where we're seeing this, particularly in, in a country like the US, this big drop in the birth rate is because women are saying, not only do I not want to assume all of that unpaid caregiving labor because it is my biological imperative, but I choose, I actually, not only choose, but I, I too must support myself. I too must support my, mm. must put my time, energy, and other resources into generating enough income to support myself. I must too be self-sufficient in this uber individualistic, uber self-sufficient kind of survival of the fittest economy that I, I was describing. So yeah, that's absolutely feeding into the drop-off in the birth rate, just the fear that people have around their own financial stability, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit also about eco-anxiety? I'm not sure that's the best framing for it, but it's certainly something that my wife feels quite a bit. She's maybe a little more apocalyptical than I am, but I I certainly understand the the underpinnings of it. Um, How do you think this, that's playing socially in terms of people's decision making at this moment where you know the writing seems to be more mm. apparently on the wall there mm. in, in terms of the fate of humans being human beings ability to actually habitate the planet yeah i mean eco anxiety is not a new thing you know people have been freaking out about the climate for the best part of 100 years or so i suppose um but it's certainly the volume has been dialed up and up and up And I use the term in the book, Childless by Climate Change. I haven't really seen that used elsewhere, but it seems quite fitting um, when applied to particularly Gen Z 
and people yeah. kind of in their mid twenties who were contemplating whether or not to become parents with that, you know, fateful date, 2050 in their minds thinking, well, yeah. if I have a kid now, I'll be just about hitting college by the time we reach irreversible climate collapse. That doesn't sound like a great world to be bringing my children into, you know, and I definitely have met people who've been very distraught, um, and who are grieving, not already grieving, not being able to have the children that they would otherwise have had because, because governments globally refuse to take consolidated and decisive action on reducing carbon emissions is what it comes down to. You know, some people would argue that overpopulation is not the problem. Overpopulation considered a problem for the climate because more people means more consumption, means more emissions, means just general more general deg degradation of the planet and, and, and extraction of the natural resources. But it's the consumption that's a problem. Some people will yeah. say, and, and including Greta Thunberg, actually, I heard her on a podcast, asked this very question, how do you feel about bringing children into the world? And I was I, and I think the podcaster was surprised to hear her say, I haven't decided yet. I might like to do that, you know, given that among envir in environmental circles, it really is considered so important to reduce the size of the population. But she echoed what I write in the book, which was, it's not that there, it's not the people that are the problem. It's the way that we consume resources. That's the problem. What's needed is radical innovation in terms of how we use and consume and create energy. And yes, for the younger cohort of women without kids, this is about, yeah, political, political action, serious political action and corporate action. Not that the two aren't deeply intertwined in terms of how are we consuming energy and how can we turn this ship around as quickly as possible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I also think that to the degree that it is possible sort of reframing one's idea of what what might make one happy. Um, we seem to always be on this hedonic treadmill where there's some glistening object on the horizon that, you know, we're chasing and say like, if only and only if I can purchase that thing, well, then I will assuage whatever deficiency I might feel about myself or my, any discontents. And then of course, the, the moment that you cut the ribbon off that box, you're, you're pursuing something else. And, yes. uh, and we've been trained, you know, that consumption and endless consumption will address the gap that we feel between where we are and our happiness. And of course, the other way at that, eliminating that gap is to actually just love what we already have. But that seems kind of antithetical <laughs> to how, uh, you know, capitalism is designed. Yeah, there was a, a whole section in the book, which I removed because it was going off on a bit too much of a tangent <laughs> <laughs> on how we've been hardwired for consumerism. There's a fantastic yeah. documentary series. You might have seen it called The Century of Self by Adam Curtis. It's a four-part documentary series that came out in the 2003, yeah. I think. And yeah. he basically charts how Edward Bernays, who was the, you know, the grandfather of public relations and advertising, who was the nephew also of Sigmund Freud, he realized that if you could apply, if you could create advertising messages that spoke to the latent, unfulfilled and taboo desires that humans embody, that Freud had identified as the root of so many of our neuroses, you could very quickly sell people stuff. That worked extremely well and has been in operation 
for the past century, since the 1920s or so. Um, And so generations who have been born over the past century have almost had cooked into us this idea that consuming is soothing, consuming is fulfillment. And I also, I was sort of taking this to the place of, well, for all the people who say they can't afford to have children. Now, of course, there are, there are people who are trying to feed families on a, a family salary of $25,000 a year. So this is very real. You know, there are 38 million families in the US living under the poverty line currently. Mm-hmm. However, for people who are, you know, middle class, if to the extent that the middle class still exists, but who are kind of ticking along, living their lives, who are saying, I don't know if I can afford to have children. There is an argument that embracing a degree of downward mobility would make having a family more affordable. But I sort of was going to make the point or trying to make the point that actually, if you come from a fraught family, if family hasn't necessarily felt like the place where I get my love and where I get filled up and where I feel comfort and support and at home, sometimes stuff can feel better than love. And especially in a culture that is groomed and even wired for consumerism to believe that consumerism is what will bring us pleasure, happiness, fulfillment, will make us lovable, um, et cetera, et cetera. And this is something I can almost identify with myself. You know, my first book was called Material Girl, Mystical World. I used to work in fashion magazines and I definitely have used consumerism as a way to escape or a way to feel better or a way to feel more pleasure or experience more joy in my life. Um, So I can absolutely relate to this. And yeah, I was sort of hypothesizing that sometimes, yeah, stuff can feel better than love. And when we weigh up what we might have to give up from a materialistic perspective in order to have a family, that feels like too much to give up. Mm-hmm. But we removed it. We removed yeah. it from the final <laughs> manuscript because it was felt like it was a bit too hypothetical and just me sort of going off on a bit of a philosophical tangent. But I think there's something in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully you didn't shred it and it's somewhere uh, salvageable. Yeah. It's somewhere. Maybe it will live as an essay at some point. But I just think that concept of downward mobility is the antithesis of the American dream. It truly is. It's just not, like you said, it's antithetical to like how, what we're believed is what we should, how we should be living our lives and what we should be aiming to achieve. All systems become unhealthy when they're they go into dysbiosis or imbalance, essentially. And we have been a culture kind of dominated by yang, if you will. So sort of that kind of sanctifies sort of the kind of male properties, if you will, of like endless growth, you know, mm-hmm. at the expense of repair, for example. Mm-hmm. All of the metrics that we use to measure society are always like, how much did you grow? GDP, S&P 500, Dow Jones International, and all this kind of stuff. So I think... You know, one of the brilliant um, impacts of this trend of 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 women without kids is that hopefully we can actually introduce more women leaders that can bring society into a greater balance, where we can sanctify and value uh, repair and 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 reparation as much as we value you know kind of these concepts of like endless growth or sort of the male economy of 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 war for example you know all of these Mm. things that sort of continue to sort of perpetuate out um 
And, uh, um, but then I, I suppose like, you know, you, you brought up this concept, um, I think it was called generativity, right? I think it was an mm -hmm. Eric Erickson concept, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, uh, of kind of, maybe you could frame it for me, but essentially how I understood it was like sort of the ability of one to kind of transcend their own personal interests and provide care and concern for younger generations. And that's obviously, you can very easily connect that to motherhood, but for women without kids, is there, where's the opportunity for generativity? Um, I want to speak very quickly first to the piece mm -hmm. about growth. <clears throat> yeah, please. When, um, when people talk about population collapse, this is the term that many economists will use when they talk about this aging population. What they're talking about is the collapse of an economic system, potential collapse of an economic system that requires perpetual growth in order to give its shareholders what they are signed on for. Right. Perpetual growth, meaning perpetual, perpetual supply of more workers and more consumers for the more products that we need to make to continue to generate more profits. So there's that. <laughs> and I do think, again, back to my kind of, you know, is this, this decrease in the population part of Mother Nature's um, way of writing herself? Nature has been extracted from to an absolutely disgraceful degree in the name of perpetual growth, in the name of perpetual harvest by the capitalist interests um, that dominate our planet. And so, yeah, there does feel, and this sort of ties in with Jenny Brown's work with birth strike, that perhaps on some level, women withdrawing from re reproductive duties, whether consciously or unconsciously by choice, by circumstance, is part of a writing or a rebalancing in terms of how we are extracting from the earth in order to mm. feed this growth system that has mm. sort of taken over on our planet. Yeah. Um, in terms of generativity, this also ties into what you said about, um, you know, potentially having more women leaders. I make the point in the book, and again, this is very generalistic. It's much more individualistic than this, but more women without kids will mean more women having more resource in terms of time, money, energy, creativity to put into projects, systems, et cetera, communities outside of the home, mm -hmm. um, whether again, by choice or by circumstance, um, it does, I think, mean more women having more influence in terms of cultural life, in terms of public life. Um, simply by nature of the fact that it is so difficult, unless you are incredibly well resourced as a woman to be able to balance the demands of motherhood and the demands of having a vibrant or impactful creative or business career or even pol political career. I think it's very interesting. And I was writing this, remember, in 2020, um, that three of the most sort of progressive female figures in US politics, Kamala Harris, AOC, and Stacey Abrams are all women without kids. And I think it's very telling. Angela Merkel, woman without kids. <laughs> you know, so many female leaders in politics have been women without kids. And I think that's just, it, it, it evidences the fact that women are more likely to have that kind of influence when they're not also mothers. It's not saying that women can't have that influence who are mothers, because there are many mothers who are having a huge impact. 
societally, um, but for the majority of women, it'll be easier when we don't have children. So again, back to your point about generativity. So even in the 1950s, Eric Erickson didn't link generativity to parenting necessarily. Generativity is, I think, the seventh of his eighth eight life stages. It's from mm. ages around 60, 40 to 60, which is around the age that, you know, women are either kind of really in the depths of their child rearing or coming out that out the other side potentially into their kind of postmenopausal years. Um, and he he said that generativity is really about this life phase where we start to ask ourselves, how can I make my life count? Um, in particular, how can my choices, my actions today have a positive impact on the generations to come, you know, regardless of whether they're my children or not. And so I offer this as a framework, I suppose, for people who don't have children, men and women, to consider how are my actions today mm -hmm. potentially positively impacting the generations to come, you know? I make the point that generativity sounds a lot like generous activity. And yeah. so anything that we do that comes from a place of generosity, I think, can be considered an act of generativity, whether it's towards another individual, towards our community, or even towards, you know, the society at, at culture at large. Yeah, I mean, mentoring, engaging in community activism, volunteering, you know, there's so many opportunities um, there to feel part of something greater than yourself. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I suppose legacy has so often been tied up with progeny because there's like this physical thing to which you pass a non-physical torch. <laughs> well, um, I mean, you pass a genetic torch, so. True. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but there's another way to create legacy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you're doing, we're, we're doing it now in a way. I sort of make the point mm -hmm. that actually, so the last chapter is called An Other Legacy, and it's looking at different ways we can think about the legacy that we leave, especially when we don't have yeah, we don't have another vessel into which our, into which to pour our genetic imprint. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, a, another term that I came across while researching this book was cultural parent, which I really like, um, mm, which nice. speaks to, I think, yeah, anybody who can identify as parenting the culture in some kind of a way, you know? Um, yeah. Meaning parenting as in the teaching, guiding, mentoring, sort of a sense. And so as an author, I can absolutely relate to that. I think podcasters kind of fall under that category. CEOs of companies, particularly companies that are having some kind of social impact can probably relate to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, kind of back to the personal, I listened to your conversation with Tammy Simon, who runs Sound True, which is your publisher um, and, you know, prolific woman with a tremendous amount of legacy and without kids, mm -hmm. um, and kind of an affirmative no without kids. Um, and one of the things that, that came up in that conversation, uh, and, and I think it more pertained to her personal experience was like, she, you know, I think had a friend, um, that said, well, you know, you'll never know that love of not having, you know, a child, you'll never know that love. And, um, 
And so, you know, I can relate to kind of my own personal experience, just sort of as a product of my own experience of what it's like to have children. And in a way, my children <laughs> have pushed me along my own spiritual path because they help me access these concepts like of karuna, for example, compassion, the identification of someone else's suffering as your own. So much, that's very, very easy for me to do with my children. It's like when they're suffering, I am suffering. I literally feel their suffering. And then, and the other side of it's true. There's a concept called mudita, joy for someone else's joy. Like I was telling you before we started recording, my daughter got into the college of her dreams yesterday, and I was in tears all day just only for her happiness, and and a pride for her doggedness and grit and persistence that I would never feel for myself. And in a way, my relationship with them has sort of helped me transcend my sense of self, sort of the illusion of self that the Buddha talks about, but also kind of my own self-absorption. And I wonder, I mean, and I'm certainly not saying that's a, an experience that is exclusive to parent, to parenting. That just happens to be my personal experience. And I guess I would just kind of ask you more personally, like, mm. do you kind of set against that, that, the context of that question that came up with Tammy, like, where do you find that transcendent love? Is, is there a place to find it other than in your children? I don't know because I've never felt it with my children. Yeah. It's very hard to dis describing the quality of an emotion is almost impossible. I think, mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost impossible for me to, oh, you actually described it quite well, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's impossible for me to imagine what that love, that specific texture of love feels like. Mm -hmm. When you were describing um, being able to feel your children's suffering almost as your own, I feel that about my parents, and it's mm. absolutely heartbreaking. Mm. I felt that um, about my husband. <laughs> yeah. I feel that about people I passed on the street who were homeless, who um, homeless and helpless. Yeah. And sometimes I think that as such a deep feeler and such an empath <laughs> that being a parent would almost be too much. <laughs> it might be too consuming <laughs> to feel somebody mm. else's kind of feelings so deeply and to have that feel that level of responsibility for their feelings. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Does it feel like a responsibility when you feel your kids suffering? Do you feel compelled to ease them of their suffering? I do. I remember... When my middle daughter, um, she had kind of chronic infection when she was a kid. And I remember being in bed with her at night when she was suffering. And, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and I would literally say, like, give it to me. I can take it. I can manage. I can manage it. Just give it to me. And so that was um, a... A very, and I, I don't think I've ever felt that 
in any other context. Mm. Now, but I'm not saying, but I would never contend that it's not possible in other contexts. That's just the one that I happen to have. And in me, I think with people that are highly compassionate and empathetic, naturally like yourself, you know, you find it, as you just described, you know, all over the world, you know, um, for me, it's just, I think I was just propelled by my experience as a dad more along that, I guess, supposedly kind of spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's curious, like menopause and, um, and generativity with Eric Erickson. I think about like Carl Jung also kind of wrote about that where it's like the first half of your life is like you're becoming an individual, you're individuating, you build up the ego. And then the second half of your life is more like, okay, wait a minute, you're sort of unwinding the ego. You're finding, quote unquote, your true self. Or even like in Hindu tradition, you're kind of the brahmachari, you're a student, and then um, you're the householder, you're holding house, <laughs> um, you know, making a career and, you know, raising children if, if that's your path. But the third phase of life, which is similar time frame, you know, 40 to 60, you become literally uh, in this, in the ashramas, you literally become a forest dweller. <laughs> you like bug off, <laughs> go wander <laughs> the forest, you know? Um, and it seems like, and, and, you know, maybe menopause is sort of the, the, like a physical trigger for that process too. And, um, and, you know, you and I, I'm a little older than you, I believe, but, you know, I think we're kind of both in this phase of our lives where we take kind of like a deeper inventory of like, you know, who we really are. And, um, and how we can be part of something greater, feel something greater, essentially transcend this feeling that we are a separate self, mm. kind of locked up in a bag of skin, separate from the world around us, separate from nature, separate from other people in competition with all these things. Um, and um, yeah, so it's, it's a fascinating time to be alive. I was always kind of not looking forward to this time in life. And now I'm just embracing it with, <laughs> with all oh, my muster. Get, reading Gail Sheehy's book made me so excited for my second adulthood. She make it, made it sound very appealing for lots of the reasons that you're describing. Thanks mm. for sharing about that experience with your daughter. That's the thing I know I'll miss. And that's the mm. thing that I've had to make peace with. Not mm. having, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> that depth of a connection with another human being um in weighing my own sort of cost benefit analysis around having mm -hmm. children that's what i know i won't be ex be able to experience in this life what you described the, even the feeling tone of what came through as you were describing it and i've made peace with i won't experience that but i will get to have all of these things that mm -hmm. I know are right for me in this life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there is a whole chapter about regrets and acceptance and accepting that no one path will bring us everything that we want and no one path will be without its challenges or its pains, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that's a huge part about of being a woman without kids, I think is just making that very kind of mature assessment of the fact that yeah, I've got one life. What choices am I going to make 
that will bring me the most contentment, the most joy, the most happiness, even at the expense of some of these other experiences that are only available as a parent in parenthood. Mm. And to your point about maturing, I've been thinking a lot in terms of our aging societies, how in a way society is becoming more mature. Maybe our society Mm. is being asked to grow up, you know, and be less self-focused and actually our aging society and the aging populations is going to place more of a focus on what human beings have to offer in the second half of life. There's so much emphasis on youth and achieving a certain amount before the age of 30, before the age of 40. And then people are kind of written off once they're beyond their 50s. And I sort of think that what we're going to see is much more of an emphasis on what older people can bring to the table. I really, really hope so. My friend Mm. Chip Conley has started this Mm. thing called the Modern Elder Academy in some ways to sort of recapture, repossess the word, the concept of elder from what now has become elderly. We Mm. used to like have the elders that we'd look up to and for wisdom and insight and experience. And I mean, we even sort of created a God that looked like it. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, now, of course, we, we largely write them off and, you know, they're a nuisance and they're ill and all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And, um, exactly. And, uh, you know, we sanctify these sort of young Silicon Valley digital natives. And, but I think, you know, you're right. There is a, an emerging appreciation for EQ, you know, emotional intelligence, if you will, and experience and God, it's so vitally important, um, to our society. And if we, you know, writing off our old people, we're losing so much potential wisdom, um, that we can apply. And, uh, you know, I know that there's this group, I think President Carter is in it and there's a few other former heads of state called the elders and they actually get mm. together, I think on Richard Branson's Island or somewhere, yes. somewhere fabulous, um, <laughs> every year. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, I, I think it's, uh, um, I'm hoping that there, yeah, we, we can address some of the greater imbalances that, that exist within our society. And, uh, you know, I think central to that is, you know, having these conversations that we're having right now um, about motherhood and non-motherhood. And um, and certainly, as you so eloquently outlined, they're central, um, yes, to gender equality, but also just to, um, you know, to moving the world down the arc of some form of moral universe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're so, I love the way you have the conversations. You're brave and vulnerable <laughs> at the same time. You can join the, those things to mean the same thing. Um, and we're just very, very grateful, um, that you've taken on this task of, you know, helping women, um, pursue their true selves without shame and regret and guilt and self-doubt. It's really, really wonderful work and very important. And, you know, I know I'm among many people who are very, very grateful. Well, I'm grateful to have this place to talk to you about it. Thanks again for having me on. It's a really, it's a really important subject. It's at the heart of our humanity. It's not just for women. This is for everybody, you know, um, it's about what we are creating and procreating as a species moving forward. 
and it doesn't i think get more important than that <laughs> mm. yeah well said so the book is um women without kids but i also know um as it is your style to think holistically you also have a, a podcast connected to that is that right yes yeah, so i interviewed um some fascinating people in my research for the book social scientists evolutionary biologists um, psychologists, authors, and I decided to record those interviews to release as a podcast series. So people can find that wherever they listen to their podcasts. It's women without kids. Nice. Okay. Ruby Warrington, what a treat to be back with you. It's been a couple of years and, uh, let's hopefully not make it such a long duration of time between, uh, our next tryst, hopefully, uh, on the streets of the Upper West Side. At some point. <laughs> I'm down for that. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye, Jeff. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ruby Warrington. I urge you to check out her latest book, Women Without Kids. The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. And if you're a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into this show's creation. And we do our best to keep advertisements to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts here, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 130 courses now featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. And you can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub. Megan Stone, Leda Maliga, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>